Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Fantasy Labs founder, Peter Jennings. Peter, thanks for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Today I'm joined by Fantasy Labs founder, Peter Jennings. Peter, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. A huge fan of the show and uh, excited to, to chat with you today. Well, I know there's a lot of areas we could touch on, from DFS to, to sports betting and everything else in that world or those worlds. Why don't you just tell us, what led you into that part of the uh, the world? You know, DFS, sports betting, poker, and all the different things you've done. And, you know, do you look back and think about that path and, and how you got there? I absolutely. I uh, played poker for a living through college. Uh, had aspirations of playing poker professionally. It was uh, kind of right during that Chris Moneymaker boom, and uh, really have always been an entrepreneur even since I was a little kid. So wanted to kind of carve my own path. And when I graduated, unfortunately, online poker was uh, we had Black Friday, so I no longer had the option to play online poker uh, in the United States. So I was forced to get a real job, leverage my finance degree. And I was a stockbroker for about a year. Uh, and during that time I was, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the process. I, I do enjoy finance, but d- desperately wanted to do something more entrepreneurial and have always been a, a huge sports fan and played a bunch of fantasy leagues. And, uh, in 2012 daily fantasy sports started to really, uh, explode, uh, in the, in the States. So, I qualified for uh, FanDuel's uh, football championship and, you know, I was 24 at the time and thought, you know, this is a great time to you know, quit my job and, and pursue this industry full time. I was very bullish from a, a business standpoint and also just from playing. And fortunately, I, I won that event and uh, that was, a, you know, the first six figure prize in daily fantasy history. And uh, that kind of catapulted me into uh, being able to make a living uh, on the business side as well as on the playing side in, in daily fantasy sports. So pretty crazy uh, ride. Uh, you know, the one thing I tell people now is that when you're young, uh, it's the best time to take risks when you, you know, don't have a family to support or you don't have other obligations. Uh, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to regret taking big risks because when you're young, you, uh, you have a lot of opportunity to, if you fall on your face to, to get back up and try something else. So, uh, that was uh, definitely a risk that, that panned out and, uh, there's still a lot more of those in the in the future, hopefully. Take us back to the starting days of your DFS. Was it something you just jumped straight into and started doing like people do with fantasy football or other things? Or were you meticulous about planning out how you wanted to approach? Because I'm guessing there is obviously you know plenty of luck when it comes to one weekend of fantasy football or even certain tournaments. But I know there's probably some skills, some mapping out of the best ways to attack it, because I'm imagining DFS has evolved a fair bit over the last handful of years, especially where it might not be as easy anymore. Absolutely. The daily fantasy industry as a whole, uh, and certainly from a playing perspective, has gotten much more efficient. But when I started, people really didn't have a a clue in what they were doing, and I certainly didn't have much more of a clue. But uh, 
I was taking an analytical approach. I was building spreadsheets and projections. Um, and, you know, my poker background, I think, really helped me from, a, you know, a bankroll management perspective and how to kind of attack different formats. So, uh, you know, in the early stages, there weren't people playing professionally because there wasn't enough volume and it was just more a recreational thing. And there's a couple guys taking it seriously. And uh, as it started to grow, uh, more and more people, you know, found an opportunity. And there's kind of this glory day uh, time frame, from like 2014 through maybe 2016, 17, where, uh, you know, if you were analytical at all and were approaching things in a, you know, decent way, uh, there's a lot of money to be made. And there certainly still is, but uh, the market's gotten way more efficient. There's a ton of data information out there. And, you know, the, the rake has gone up, whereas... In 2014, 2015, the sites were spending so much money on customer acquisition, and one of the ways they were attracting customers was by having overlay, guaranteeing contests that they knew wouldn't fill. So uh, even if you were average, you were making money in those contests. So uh, that was the the glory, glory days, and um, I was fortunate to be at the right place at the right time, and it's been really fun to just kind of watch the industry evolve uh, since then. Looking back on your DFS time, were you – overly lucky were you not lucky enough uh was it one of those things where no matter you know what path you might have taken with your dfs playing you were probably going to win anyway just because it was so uh like you said the the glory days the heyday back then i was absolutely lucky with the timing i I think i worked really hard and had a process that was going to yield results dfs like you mentioned there is a lot of uh luck in the short term but uh in the long term uh it's a skill-based game very similar to poker so over time, uh, the, the most skillful players are going to win. But uh, being at the right place at the right time was a, a huge blessing. And, uh, yeah, just having money and building a bankroll early uh, and having enough you know, capital to deploy during the really lucrative time was uh, a very fortuitous uh, situation to be in. So certainly uh, w- was fortunate. But, uh, yeah, I think there, I think it's a blend of of luck in terms of timing, but then also hard work and a skill in terms of everything else. How many people do you think back then were doing it to the level you were with, you know, a meticulous spreadsheeting out and, and looking at players probably from an individual perspective and, and going through all the different criteria that required you to be able to be at the, you know, the top end. I would say there's probably 20 to 30 people um, in that that time frame that were doing it professionally and making really good money. Certainly hundreds of people that were making, you know, close to six figures um, are enough to make a living. And the one thing that's really expanded and that's, uh, I think, a huge part of the industry uh, now, um, but was giving people the opportunity to be full time is the content space. Uh, People love talking about fantasy football and all these different fantasy games and DFS has really blossomed. So there's always need for content every single day and that that part of the industry has really grown a lot so that's been fun and uh you know i think that you know there's a lot of people that are full-time in the dfs industry now what would you change if you could go back in your time in dfs whether it's you know the type of play you were doing back then how you went about it are there there any things that come to mind that you would love to have over again i think overall you did a pretty decent job at, at navigating that period Oh, of course, I would love to uh, have, uh, you know, a lot more. Um, I would love to have some certain things back. I made a I didn't swap a defense uh, in, a, in a very obvious spot that cost me a little over a million dollars. That was very, very Yikes. obvious. Uh, so that was a big mistake. Um, you know, I didn't press things at certain times and 
Uh, maybe it was too aggressive on other things. But for the most part, I think given, you know, what I knew at the time and, uh, you know, the decisions I made, it's easy to beat yourself up on, on certain things. But I think I handled it pretty well. Uh, I wish I would have gotten into the business side of things a little quicker. Um, but still, and then specifically on the, on, on the affiliate side, which is a huge boom in DFS. And, uh, you know, the affiliate business is a very interesting one for sports betting and, and poker and, and, and DFS. And I think it's really organic, actually, in DFS. So I wish I would have uh, attacked that angle, but uh, pretty happy with how I navigated the space, both from a business side and uh, on the playing side. Tell me about pressing. You mentioned it just then. I know many people look back and think, gee, I wish I had have gone a bit harder or, or, or done things in a way that I could have maximized my situation. But I'm sure plenty of it's looking back and, and hindsight bias or whatever it was at the time. Do you think that in those instances that you have the, the capabilities to know you know, exactly where you're at with things. Um, and I guess it's depends on the, the type of game we're talking. Obviously, poker back in the moneymaker days and, and to now it's very different. Same with DFS. But but people are looking at sports betting today. Tell us about 25-year-old person X thinking about how they're going to maximize their position. Do you have any thoughts on the best way for them to go about doing that within a, you know, a relatively sensible risk profile? Absolutely. So I think one thing that I didn't think enough about early on was just how big of an edge I had. And, and I certainly pressed it and took some big risks when I was young. But during that that glory day period, I really had a huge advantage, especially with uh, the overlay and other elements that were happening happening in DFS. So uh, I should have invested even more. I was somewhat conservative because uh, once you make a little bit of money, you, you kind of want to protect it. And, and of course, staying in the game is the most important thing. But uh, I had such a, a huge edge that I, I probably should have pressed it a little bit more. And, you know, you can look at like Kelly Carterian and a lot of different bankroll management tools uh, and, and strategies. But when you have a really substantial edge that compounds uh, daily, like it does in DFS, you should be really, really trying to press it and take advantage. And, and I figured that out maybe 2016, 2017. But if I would have applied that same methodology uh, a couple years previous, uh, I would have a lot more money at this point in time. So that is, uh, you know, something that um, is kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people because I think, you know, most people who, you know, are prone to playing DFS professionally or gambling professionally, they probably have quite a bit of gamble. Um, so a lot of times it's the opposite advice that's needed. But when you truly have a substantial edge and something that compounds quickly, you need to uh, press that because it's going to go away over time. Uh, you know, in, in any market, things inevitably get more efficient. So uh, it's it's tough to sustain uh, a substantial edge, uh, you know, no matter what market you're in. So when you do have one and you know you have one and you can back test it and see the results, uh, you should be absolutely pressing it to the max. What were the swings like over that period of time with, you know, bankroll and just the way the certainly DFS, but just generally, was it was it a tough period of time or was it relatively flat? So there were there were some big swings. The nice thing about daily fantasy in general is that you you know you get so much volume. Uh, probably the most interesting story going the other way of what I just said, but uh, maybe this kind of curtailed how I, I attack things. But 2014, I was fortunate enough to win a million dollar uh, contest on DraftKings. Um, had a huge year overall in 2014, uh, so I have a big tax bill. And then in January, uh, I lost the mid six figure amount quickly, uh, that month. So I had a huge tax bill and a huge loss. And I went from having X bankroll, uh, to quickly realizing, okay, wow, this is, uh, 
one of the things that can really hurt you. The, the taxes for professional gamblers and for DFS players uh, is a really tricky situation. I've set up an LLC and, and, and run things through as a business now, but uh, that was one thing uh, that was a nice learning lesson. So that was probably the the craziest and swing and, and most stressful time was just the huge tax bill plus uh, a huge downswing in January. So that's one thing I'm always cognizant of is, you know, if you're coming off a good year, make sure you kind of recalibrate for, for the next year. But uh, other than that, uh, you know, there's been some big swings. You remember the the woulda, coulda, shoulda moments um, and certainly the losses hurt more than the wins feel good. But uh, for the most part, uh, there's just so much volume in DFS and you get to go back every day that uh, variance kind of smooths out over time. Do you think you're better suited to being a, a player in, in these games or do you think the business side is something that, you know, you can adapt to and is, is better suited for your skill set? Great question. I, I think I think part of the reason the business side has been interesting and exciting to me is that I, I am so passionate about it as a player. So I think those work well together. But now I'm definitely more focused on the business side. I think there's a tremendous opportunity, especially in sports betting. Uh, we have legal betting here in Colorado now. And, uh, you know, uh, after we sold Fancy Labs and are now part of the Action Network, uh, very, very passionate about the uh, business opportunity and, and educating people um, in betting. I think there's a, a really big opportunity to turn the general public and casual sports bettors into smarter bettors so that they're looking for things like the best price and they're really aware of uh, certain mistakes that a lot of bettors make. And uh, I'm excited to, to educate people in that space. And of course, there's a lot of opportunity. So I'm much more interested in the business side of things now and, and wish I would have gotten into that a little bit earlier. But at the same time, I do believe uh, the success we had at Fantasy Labs was driven from the experience and passion from being a player first. What level do you think the general sports fan is in the United States with respect to betting? And I know we've had DFS for a while. Plenty of people play fantasy. Uh, you know, poker's not new and so on and so forth. But when it comes to sports betting, do you think the starting level is similar to many other parts of the world? Do you think there's a a heightened level of you know involvement in sports betting and therefore people will be able to grasp it quicker what's your assessment on that because a lot of these businesses now working within the u.s you know regulated markets will be trying to promote you know different types of content tools and these types of things for that audience where is that audience at do you think i think in general uh the u.s customer base and, and just people in the u.s are very comfortable with betting but overall are not educated on how to bet uh, well, I, I think that most people just, you know, want to turn a game on and, and bet aside for entertainment, which truly that's the, the, the best value of betting. You know, it, it's very tough to beat. Uh, the majority of people are not going to win, but it's incredible entertainment and engagement, which uh, is great business for the operators, for the content and, of course, for the leagues. Uh, you know, there's nothing more entertaining than having money, uh, you know, on a game. So all that flows and, and works really well together. But I do think. Uh, the general public uh, doesn't understand how important, uh, you know, basically getting the best price on whatever bet they're making, uh, understanding certain bet types are, are going to be much less profitable. So, uh, you know, I think now uh, people are making a ton of really, really bad bets. Um, and hopefully over time, people will be educated on being able to maximize that entertainment. But, uh, you know, doing so uh, with a, a smaller uh, negative ROI or hopefully more and more people can actually turn this into something that's profitable for them. So uh, one thing I, I think that will be able to you know, be profitable for a lot of people is kind of this 
gold rush we're seeing, um, you know, as states legalize, uh, there's a huge customer acquisition battle between all the operators, and they're going to use the same playbook they used in DFS and other uh, betting markets around the world. They're going to be spending money to acquire customers. So if you're savvy, you can take advantage of bonuses and and really be cognizant of some great prices and great opportunities, and uh, you can grind out uh, some some nice money if you're that's what you're focused on. So. We'll see uh, how it develops over time. Uh, you know, the state by state thing is definitely a lot different than other countries, but I'm optimistic it's going to be the biggest market in the world and uh, there's going to be a ton of opportunity from a, a variety of different angles. So I'm curious about your thoughts when it comes to, let's just say, the average player out there and their consumption of content versus, I mean, I guess my question is what level of what leveling up can you achieve if you're an average player in the content space versus, you know, software? Because I, I think the underutilized aspect of the market is that software is probably the best way to combat some of the biases that we all face when, we, when it comes to betting. And too often we're, we're educating, we're providing content, we're telling people what to do and how to do it. But at the end of the day, for many, many people, it won't necessarily change too much of their behavior. Right. Right. And that's something I'm really passionate about. I think the majority of people who get in the, the content space and, and what most people are looking for is just picks. So we see so many different forms of touting and some of them are as slimy as all get out and just repulsive to me, honestly. And then there's some decent forms where people are you know, more transparent and um, you know, are, are trying to educate people on, on certain things and aren't, aren't just giving straight picks. But for the most part, everything kind of gravitates towards this picks oriented uh you know, content, which, uh, you know, if someone's a actual winning better and putting out picks, the lines are either going to move, which are going to make the bets not profitable, or they're not really a winning better. And, you know, there's a whole matrix of, uh, how tough of a business it is to be, um, you know, on the touting side and actually provide value to the customers. So that part of the, the element is, is something that I hope evolves over time. I completely agree. That's something we're really passionate about at fantasy labs and, you know, within the action network, I think our app is incredible and we're trying to do a lot of different things on the content side. And uh, specifically, the, the Fantasy Labs team is now building high end tools to help people look for better prices and, and uh, you know, put data in front of them that they can leverage to, to model out things and test hypotheses. So I think it's really important that people take an analytical approach if they truly want to try to win. And I hope over time uh, we get more and more away from uh, some of the slimy touting, especially all the, you know, fake screenshots and, uh, you know, the Vegas Daves of the world who are just total slime balls. Uh, I want to see that stuff go away and hopefully there's more accountability uh, kind of in the sleazy touting world. Yeah, I think we all do because obviously the challenge exists that, you know, most people are negative EV and they want to get closer maybe to break even or even win. But the reality is it's very challenging to get there and even if you do, you know, it's it's harder to stay there. So I, I guess how do you balance that part of it with, you know, new customers in all these states that are going to bet with all these regulated sports books is going to be those customer acquisition battles that you talked about. Do you think that accountability, how do we make that more more important or, or improve? Because it's, it's funny, I've read, you know, books about the history of horse racing and sports betting and gambling over the years. And, you know, some of the stories back in the even the early 1900s, late 1800s of people at horse tracks touting different horses. They've got, you know, special information from trainers and jockeys. And honestly, we're not far removed from there, in my opinion, even though the world's sort of 
accelerated pretty quickly on the technology and internet side. A lot of those stories are pretty much the same. Things are just dressed up a little bit differently these days. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and I agree with you. I, you know, like I mentioned before, the, the nice thing with DFS is it's peer to peer. Same thing with poker. So, uh, you know, there's going to be it's in general, it's easier to win in those games than when you're competing against a business. I mean, it's very, very challenging to beat sports betting. But like I mentioned before, I think the the biggest value is entertainment. And if we can get people away from, you know, really losing their shirt to, you know, getting close to that break, even maybe they're losing like half a percent or something like that. Uh, I think that's a, a win. So the biggest part to me there is, you know, educating people again on the importance of price and process and, you know, I think discipline's another factor. Uh, you know, I think we can build some really cool tools about the mistakes that people make uh, if they're willing to track their bets. So we'll see how that evolves over time. And, and, and hopefully people start to understand just how bad some of these touts are. Uh, I think that's another thing that, uh, you know, people are pretty gullible. They see, you know, flashy cars or, you know, tickets where people are winning big sums of money, whether that's real or not. And, they're, uh, you know, they're drawn in by the get rich quick type of uh, mentality. So uh, as people get more and more educated on that, which we've seen a little bit more around the world, I think that'll be good. And, uh, you know, at the, at the same time, like, you know, it's an entertainment thing, too. So figuring out how to maximize that entertainment. I'm pretty bullish on uh, in-game betting. I think that's something that's super fun for people involved. And, uh, you know, the education, again, on price and process, I, I think will be really helpful. So that's something I'm passionate about. And, uh, yeah, it, it definitely is not at that point now. There's a ton of sleazy stuff out there, but hopefully that that changes over time. Tell me a little bit about the the overlap or the interplay with the different games. Obviously, DFS we've talked a little bit about sports betting. We mentioned poker. You know, even the stock market. You know, I like the the price and process idea. That certainly overlaps pretty well across the the different games. But I do still sense there is. And I even feel it myself, like I'm not fully comfortable speaking, you know, in depth about poker necessarily. Um, I don't have any background or experience there. But oftentimes people want to try and make sure people stay in their lanes. Do you think that's a good thing? Or do you think extrapolating out and expanding out helps, you know, thought process in these different gambling games? Um, Because I think that's something that is going to be interesting as we evolve here, whether or not you know, is the Action Network a place for gambling generally? And you can have a a poker, you can have a DFS, a sports betting part of that, or is it something that people do really want niche specialized experts in those fields? Great question. I I think in general, those games have, there's so many similarities with all those different games. uh, And those are like my biggest passions collectively. Uh, You know, the stock market, it's so funny to me how uh, that's just so you know, if you say you're, you know, an investor, you work for a hedge fund or whatever, uh, especially years ago, that was just looked upon as, you know, a great job and a respected career. And then there's kind of a negative connotation with gambling or sports betting and, uh, you know, playing DFS or whatever. And and that's starting to change, which I'm excited about because they're all risk reward games. Of course, uh, the stock market, the one benefit that, that it has is that, you know, it's not a zero sum game, uh, you know, the, the as a whole. Uh, especially over time in the U.S. Uh, who knows if this is what will sustain over time, but it's been a good investment if you've, you've stayed in the market. So time in the market's been uh, a big edge uh, versus these other ones. But DFS and poker, peer-to-peer, uh, truly skill-based games, if you work really hard at those and you're you know, a smart and talented person, you're going to be able to figure out ways to win. 
I think they're really uh, compelling markets. And poker has gotten really efficient really quickly uh, over the last couple of years. But there's still plenty of opportunity. And, and in poker, they actually saw a huge boom uh, with COVID. Uh, online poker skyrocketed. And, uh, you know, all my friends were playing poker again. And it's been fun to kind of hang out on Zoom calls and and uh, and play with friends. So it's been fun to see that uh, grow again, which is which is exciting. And maybe poker will have some really big beneficiaries out of uh, this kind of new normal that we're going to be in. And, and DFS, too. I mean, it's been interesting to see, you know, esports DFS grow a lot. Of course, PGA Tour coming back. The, the golf contests are incredible. There's millionaire makers every week. And uh, it's a really compelling market. And I think the peer to peer element uh, is something that's really exciting. And, and um, you know, there can be an edge for the people that work hard and are skillful. And on the betting side, you know, the traditional model is versus the operator. And I think there's a lot of reasons why that's going to continue to be the case, at least in the short term. But one thing we haven't talked about that's been prevalent uh, on this podcast from a variety of different angles is the exchange model. Um, and I think there's challenges with liquidity on the exchange model. That's the the biggest hurdle is establishing that liquidity. But uh, I'm extremely bullish long term on an exchange model as people get more and more educated. So that peer to peer element, I think, is a, a huge part of uh, all those markets. And uh, I'm hopeful that that comes into play on the betting side. Uh, I know you've talked to a lot of people. What are your current thoughts on uh, the exchange model and, and the challenges and the upside uh, of that? I love the model. I love it on a napkin. I love it on paper. I, I'm i legally trained, so I, I probably have a heightened focus and maybe focus too much on the barriers, which many other smarter entrepreneurs and, and people in the space uh, may see them, but, but also might see them as hurdles that they can jump over, and I definitely hope they do. I think it's it's a... It's something that often gets torn down by uh, taxation, by how it's treated. Um, and I think this is probably the case in, in many instances. And there's plenty of uh, analogies across different gambling games. Even you think about poker. You know, if the rake is 0%, let's say, you know, extreme examples versus versus 20% of the pot, it's a totally different game. You think about paramutuals, whether it's horse racing or, or other things. I think paramutuals are an incredibly valuable idea as well. And one of the problems with paramutuals that I've seen and observed is that they've kind of haven't worked great over the last two decades in many places where gambling's been uh, legal and regulated for a while uh, because of takeout, because of rebates, because of all these different things. Yet you still see places like Hong Kong with a thriving paramutual model. And, and I think exchanges peer-to-peer generally, you know, you've talked about DFS, poker, some of these things where it is much more peer-to-peer than, than betting with an operator. I just wish that we didn't, you know, blow up the the possibilities for an exchange model on the outset with things like the Wire Act, things like, um, you know, cross-state liquidity, things like how do we make it scalable technology in the in a modern era um, to allow a country like the U.S. to benefit from that? Because I do think it there's so much friction as is um, trying to get an exchange model off the ground. You know, from a U.S. wide perspective, is tough. Obviously, state by state, it's it's possible, and we've seen what's gone on in jersey already with with the betfair exchange um but what what are your thoughts then especially from a colorado specific point of view and then even just more broadly as we as we get throughout the early years of sports betting and into maybe a uh you know more consolidated marketplace over maybe it's a decade away or whatever it is i i love it uh from a I think, again, like you mentioned, I think it's a, a great idea. I think it should work over time as people are more educated and, you know, especially if there's incentives around liquidity. But 
yeah, like you mentioned, there's so many challenges from a tax perspective. Um, you know, the operators have done such a great job with customer acquisition and they don't have that liquidity challenge. So over time, I think it'll work, uh, not bullish in the short term. I think people are, are you know, everyone kind of thinks of this idea, but it's an incredibly challenging idea to get off the ground. And we'll see, uh, you know, I'm really interested in Augur and I think blockchain technology, one of the best use cases would be an exchange model. So uh, we'll see what, what transpires over time, but there's certainly a lot of hurdles, uh, but as a, you know, better and, and, you know, someone who's really interested in space, it certainly would be great to see it, it come to fruition in a big way. And I know there's been some success around the world, but for the most part, uh, it, it's been a challenge and most of these ideas have flopped. So uh, I'm cautiously optimistic, I guess, at this point, but it's definitely going to take time, especially here in the States. What about the idea of a, you know, exchange on the back end, but the front end looks like a sports book or looks like a, a typical experience for a user? Do you think that matters? Do you think the, the Betfair interface is a, is a challenge for a U.S. market? And I know, you know, someone like Smarkets is is here in the U.S. and, and they want to, you know, certainly make some waves in, in certain states. I've spoken to Jason about that on this podcast already. And it's something where, you know, they're doing SBK, but it's something where into the future, it's it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, these companies that are creating exchanges now or, or have them already target the U.S. audience and then how they go about it. Yeah, I do think the most important thing uh, in the U.S. for, you know, a, any platform to take off is customer or better needs to come on and they need to be able to make the bet and they need to know what they're betting and they need to get filled instantly. So yeah, I think that there could be a really nice opportunity where on the front end, it just looks like a traditional book, especially as people are comfortable with that. There's something intimidating about the exchange model. Uh, you know, if you're looking at uh, a complicated screen uh, in terms of what's available. So I do think that that's a big part of it. And I think on the back end, it's just incentivizing, you know, the big betters. And that's where uh, you know, professionals could come in and really set the markets and eliminate a lot of the the VIG. And um, I do think that how it's presented is a huge part of it. So we'll see. Um, on mobile, I think that's another really interesting part. How could you make uh, an exchange that's mobile friendly and that's very easy for, you know, a casual better? Uh, that's a huge part of it. And again, I think the real challenge, which addressing it in terms of how it's presented is just getting that liquidity. So uh, we'll see how that evolves. Uh, I think that there's a lot of smart people that are thinking about this and, and hopefully it comes to fruition sooner rather than later, but I do think it's going to take some time. So you talked about skill-based games before and, and how it applies to DFS. I've followed certainly the legal arguments of it as it applies to the US over the years, but I'm, I, it always struck me that it depends on the person and how they approach the game, whether or not they individually see it as a skill-based game because you as a DFS you know, winning major tournaments, major prize pools, making it um, very profitable versus, you know, if I just started playing DFS one day or if, you know, someone's betting professionally at sports, you know, they're using a fair bit of skill to try and make money out of the sports betting markets. But average better who just wants it for entertainment, for them, the game is a bit different. And I know the mechanics of the game are the same for the for those people, but I think the the mentality and approach of an individual needs to be factored in a little bit and i think that's where trying to put a general blanket across certain games is fine and it needs to be done obviously but i also think downstream to the user and the end user who's placing the bets let's say uh there's different approaches for them that we still probably haven't figured out either of course yeah i mean i think the key in a lot of these skill-based games is can't you know if you do approach it the right way 
uh, or, or, you know, if you're approaching it seriously and trying to make money at it, you know, can skill be a factor or the predominant factor even where that determines kind of your profitability over time? Of course, you know, a lot of people are just coming in for entertainment and there's DFS games like PGA Golf, which is my favorite uh, DFS game at this time. A casual person can come in and make a decent lineup really quickly without any research um, and not be drawing dead. Uh, whereas like in the NBA, uh, if someone just came on and, and clicked NBA players uh, with the amount of, uh, you know, variance there is in the NBA, uh, they're basically drawing dead. So for sure, it depends on, on how they're approaching the game. Uh, it can be just straight gambling and uh, it can be really negative EV too, uh, if you're coming in and not doing any work on it. So uh, that part of it is a little bit challenging. And I think that Within DFS, that but that's what makes it a little bit more of a hardcore, uh, you know, sports speculation game versus just traditional betting, where uh, anyone can come in and bet one side, and they're not going to be, uh, you know, too negative EV just given the the, the nature of, uh, you know, uh, how the betting markets are set up. So, within DFS and other skill-based games, that's an interesting part of it, but uh, I think that's what makes it fun. Uh, obviously, I'm a little biased given that it's been. A huge part of my living over the years but um yeah it's same thing with poker um i think those two games it, you know if you don't know what you're doing at all and you're just coming in and gambling it up of course you're going to be pretty negative negative ev but uh that's where education and that's where content honestly especially in daily fantasy sports uh content and tools have really helped uh the, you know the casual fan who loves the dfs games but doesn't have all the time to, to do it professionally uh, the content's gotten so much better and the tools have gotten so much better that they do have a chance to compete. Do you have any thoughts on paramutual pools and how they might be received by the, let's just say, U.S. market generally, whether it's state by state or, or further? Because I do think it has the potential for a certain audience to have those, you know, what a lot of people want is putting in five, ten, twenty dollars $20 and potentially winning 20000 or 50000 or it can get higher. Do you think that's something that's worth talking about or considering from a U.S. perspective? Because it, it's kind of, at least from my observations, um, it's not a sexy topic necessarily. Yeah, I love it. I, I'm a huge Calcutta fan. Uh, I think those are a ton of fun. And uh, yeah, all the mutual markets, I think, could really take off. Again, it's just education. And, and I think over time, the stigma is going to go away on sports betting completely. We're seeing that. I think uh, COVID has accelerated. Uh, the state's interest in getting sports betting legalized, especially uh, from a mobile perspective. So, again, just education, and I think people will get more and more excited. And one thing we haven't talked about that really helped DFS explode and what you just referenced there that I think is so critical uh, in all of these markets and what is really entertaining and drives volume uh, from people is the lottery-type payouts. People, like what, what really made DFS explode were the millionaire makers, where people can invest 20 bucks have a chance to win a million. Uh, that that life-changing moment, people are always chasing it. Uh, so that's been a, a huge driver for customer acquisition. And I think the same thing could be applied in sports betting. Of course, uh, I don't think people should be making these huge parlays all the time, which a lot of casual gamblers have the tendency to do. But there's a smart way to, to you know create lottery-type payouts that aren't wildly negative EV. Uh, I think that's a good thing overall for the industry. And certainly, uh, it's just proven over and over and over again that that's what people want yeah no doubt and the other thing i wanted to ask you about was just the contests you know the the super contests uh in in vegas with the nfl sides even though you know i remember the first time i looked into it I was like these seem to be stale lines i don't understand why this is so popular and it seems like there's going to be a couple every week where it's 
probably a good thing to be uh, to look at those stale lines. And then I've seen some stuff more recently where maybe it's a good idea to, to go against that in a contest style setup. Is that something else that might catch on where people can feel engaged over a, you know, let's say a 15 week period and there might be end of season type stuff with major payouts, but things along the way that will keep them interested? Yeah, I love all of those things. So you, you blend sports betting peer to peer and you have a lottery payout. That's like the perfect combination of things. And that's why those type of contests have been wildly successful. So I, I love that. Uh, I think that we'll see more and more of those things. Uh, I competed in the first sports betting national championship on DraftKings, which was a ton of fun, uh, where you were given a bet, you know, you bought in for a certain amount of money. Uh, and I think it was like that tournament was 10 grand, I believe five grand went to the, uh, prize pool and then you had a five grand bankroll and how whoever grew their bankroll the most over three days uh won and there's so much strategy and uh, i think you know the hybrid games have a huge potential uh we've seen best ball formats really take off a new form of kind of season-long fantasy where you draft and then you're done and uh they turn those into millionaire makers and those have been wildly popular so any blending of these games, I think, can be really, really exciting for the, you know, the betters and players. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll see more and more of uh, those hybrid games come around because I think they're a ton of fun. People clearly love them and it blends the skill and, and traditional betting in a really nice way. Yeah. And it's since I've lived in the U.S., I've found certainly around March Madness is probably my favorite mm -hmm. where there's so many different games that people come up with. It's obviously there's the brackets and, and whatever else, but the amount of different type of games people have uh, said, do you want to be involved in? Um, I'm currently in a 32-team uh, NFL season-long you know, fantasy competition, which is very interesting. Um, and then we do a draft every year. But even you know, some of the, the types of games that people have come up with for college sports and, and in March, I would love to see some of them adopted you know, across the mainstream, whether it's by operators or by new companies coming in and offering these types of things. Because I think it throws a bit of a spanner in the works in terms of the typical minus 110 bet that people have expected over the years and, and been a part of. And I think that, you know, there's not a hell of a lot of innovation, you know, the true sense of the word, but I do think there are plenty of things that do exist or are on the fringe that could find their way to the mainstream. And given the opportunity from a widespread perspective in a market like the US, there's plenty of people out there with plenty of smart ideas. And I think bringing them all together through the regulated online mobile focused marketplace is something that I hope takes off very, very soon. Oh, you and me both. I think that makes a ton of sense. And yeah, I hope we see more and more innovation. I think people are just kind of waiting to see how things play out. And of course, it's easy to just do traditional models that we've seen work around the world. And of course, the you know black market for betting before we had legal betting in the US is huge. So uh, people are just taking some general approaches. But uh, as the market matures, uh, we'll see a lot more innovation and hopefully we'll have the legal landscape where people can get really innovative and creative with new games. Cause there's uh you know, the, the gamification and the types of games that Americans have played. I mean, we're obsessed with fantasy football. We all do March madness brackets and there's so many different games that we're used to that the rest of the world uh, hasn't done as much cause they've had the option to do just traditional betting. So the, the blending of those two things could lead to some really cool things and, I'm optimistic that we'll see uh, some some great stuff here in the U.S. from an innovation standpoint once the market matures and we have the, the right legal landscape. So put your business hat on for a moment. What things have you taken from your time as a player making, you know, plus EV bets or decisions, 
you know, in peer-to-peer type games or DFS, whatever it might be, to being a, you know, a business executive working with Fantasy Labs and, and how have you sort of taken things or transitioned things that you learned playing to the business arena? So at Fantasy Labs, we were really proud of what we built, uh, specifically because we went more on the the data tools and kind of news element. Uh, you know, when we first started the company, uh, the majority of DFS content and, and sites were just, hey, here's who we like today. Here's the picks. Uh, they would do some shows talking about who to play that day. And uh, there wasn't, uh, you know, a data driven approach, which, uh, like we've talked about, is critical to, to giving yourself a chance to win and ultimately becoming a, a winning DFS player. So we built a platform where you could build and backtest your own models. Uh, we really took a, a big stance on leveraging market data uh, from you know traditional betting and how you could apply that to DFS. Honestly, that was the, the biggest advantage that I had early on is that people weren't looking uh, you know at, at lines and specifically leveraging the, you know the, the sharp actual bookmakers. Uh, you know, leveraging that information and applying it to DFS was a, a huge advantage. So we built a ton of different tools and information based on, uh, you know, market movements and all the traditional betting data that we had. And of course, uh, another element that's huge, especially in like uh, NBA DFS and other things is the news. And uh, we thought that that was an underserved market. So we've prided ourselves on, on delivering the news uh, as fast and quickly as possible on Twitter. And We've integrated those uh, news blurbs and items into our products. So uh, all of those things, I think, are, are you know truly valuable, and they're not just saying, "Hey, play this guy today," or you know, make this pick. Uh, giving people kind of the stuff they need to fish instead of trying to give them the fish each day uh, is something that we're really proud of at Fantasy Labs. And you know, now at the Action Network, I think uh, you know there's obviously uh, you know a lot of different things that everyone in the sports betting industry is trying to do, and um, what I'm really proud of is is our app, which uh, I think just has so much cool data and the ability to track your bets. And of course, if you're sweating the games, uh, we have just an incredible interface. So uh, I'm really proud of the app and our content is is truly evolving. You know, uh, over time, I think uh, we're trying to get more and more on the education side and and doing things a little differently uh, than just the traditional touting. Of course, uh, you know, there's there's always challenges and, and you know growth in that that department and um, yeah, it's it's one thing that we're just trying to get better at is, you know, what type of content is compelling and educational and that's not just traditional touting. So uh, Fantasy Labs are really proud of how we serve the DFS market and I'm really uh, excited about uh, the growth of the Action Network and some of the changes that we've made since the early days. Interesting, interesting. So you would, what, just go on Pinnacle and look at the some of the derivative markets and then that wouldn't be included in the DFS markets back in the day? Is that what you were saying? Exactly. So DFS markets pricing would come out, you know, the night before and, uh, you know, the, they wouldn't be taking into account. I mean, the pricing was pretty marginal uh, to begin with. They didn't really get they've gotten a lot more serious about the pricing uh, over time. And that's part of the, how the market's gotten more efficient. Uh, you know, as an operator, the more efficient you make the pricing, uh, people spend the salary, they're going to have a more optimal team. So they've gotten better at that to kind of mitigate some of the skill gaps. And initially, the pricing was just wildly bad. And yeah, I literally would look at Pinnacle and Bookmaker and uh, you could look at props, but you could also look at line movement, you know, for baseball. Early on, people didn't even know to, to stack up a team for, for fantasy. So you get a lot of benefit by playing everyone from one team, of course, and because uh, of all the correlation. And I would be looking at team totals and which team totals were steaming and uh, 
honestly, probably the biggest part of my overall process was just trying to leverage all the information from the markets and the line movement. And uh, yeah, people were not doing that. Um, so, and even people didn't know to look at Pinnacle or Bookmaker. If they were looking at sports betting stuff, they'd look at, you know, whatever, like just local thing they had. And uh, of course, looking at the sharper books uh, provided an edge. Interesting. Interesting. So you're in Colorado. Tell us what it's been like going through the uh, the starting evolution of, of online legal sports betting there. It's been fun. Uh, it's been extremely time consuming. Uh, golf is one of my favorite sports to bet on from a DFS perspective and traditional betting. So it's been really time consuming, but uh, it's been a fun process and there's a ton of operators coming here. We have some of the strongest legislation and and operator-friendly legislation here. I I lobbied for that, and fortunately, uh, that passed here in Colorado. So we're seeing a ton of different books uh, come out here, which is great. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of different markets, uh, you know, especially in golf right now. It's not going to be this way uh, when we have traditional sports uh, back, but there's just so many different markets available, and and, uh, there's a variety of operators. And what I talked about before that I think will help the the average sports fan the most is price uh, and line shopping. So it's pretty incredible the the differences in, in the lines uh, on a lot of these markets. So just being aware of that, and uh, we've built some tools uh, at Fantasy Labs. We have a, a product coming out called the Labs Terminal, uh, where we're going to really take a look at like synthetic hold and all these different things that I've been uh, testing and, and looking through. So uh, there's actually been some ARBs available and. Um, it's fun to kind of be in the early stages of a, of a market here in Colorado. So I know that won't last forever, but uh, right now it's uh, similar to kind of the glory days of DFS. I feel like that uh, we have all these operators coming out. They're spending a ton of money on customer acquisition and uh, the, the difference in pricing is pretty wild, which creates a lot of opportunity. Interesting. So what do you tell college kids or people that want to work at fantasy labs, want to work at the action network, want to be involved in the industry how do they navigate it? Do they follow what you did and, and be a player for a while and learn, you know, the markets, the games themselves and, and come up with their own ideas? Or is there a better path for people, someone in Colorado that's 23 years old who's listening to this, what would you tell them? Well, I think there's a variety of ways you can go about things. But, you know, most people, I think in general, there's a lot of sports fans, and a lot of people who want to work in the space. So there's that element that's a little bit challenging uh, from a competition standpoint. But if you're unique and, 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 you know, truly passionate, you can find ways that the biggest thing by far, though, that's going to separate you and what I'm looking for and uh, what I've if I guess I, when you, to answer one of your other questions going back in time, uh, I'm pretty proficient with Excel and some other things. But uh, I've had to hire people uh, to do a lot more of the quantitative and, and modeling and, and coding. So I think the biggest advantage that you can have uh, and skill set that's needed in this space is on the technical side. So. Uh, if you're young and, and looking to break into the space, I'd do everything you can to learn to code and uh, really attack things from an analytical standpoint because it truly is a, a big math game. And, uh, of course, there's some other subjective uh, elements that you can bake in. But for the most part, uh, you know, taking that analytical approach and being able to code uh, is the biggest differentiator. And that's, you know, when people reach out to me looking to break into the space or, you know, want to work with me or whatever, uh, that's that is easily the most compelling element to me is finding someone who, uh, you know, is, is proficient, uh, on the coding side. Yeah. I think that's certainly a trend across all these different things, whether it is, 
you know, new technology, new platforms, you know, you talked about Olga before, betting exchanges, whatever it might be. And then even those people trying to win in those markets, it's one of the things that is often discussed. So how do people find you if they want to reach out, say hello, have a question for you? Um, we could chat for hours and I'm cognizant of your time. So uh, what's the best way for people to, to follow along with what you're up to? Yeah, thanks, Jake. I'm, again, huge fan of this podcast. I, I listen to basically every episode and uh, uh, what you're doing is unique and you're, you're attacking it from a, a different angle and you get great guests on to, to talk about the market and how it evolves. And I've learned a lot from listening to you and the guests. So it's been great. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm at CSURAM88 on Twitter. Uh, same thing in the Action Network app. Uh, feel free for anyone who's listening to this uh, to email me at peter.jennings at actionnetwork.com. And uh, yeah, look forward to hearing from people and uh, absolutely always interested to talk to people who are passionate about the space. So thanks again for having me, Jake, and keep up all the great work, man. No worries at all. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again, Peter. Peter.